Welcome to All Power to the Developing, a podcast of the Eastside Institute, where social justice, human development, and community building come together. This is where you will meet activists, artists, teachers, scholars, helpers, and healers who are bringing creativity, hope, and possibility to individuals and communities all over the world. to everyone out there what's going on this is all power to the developing this is your host des des wanden i'm the assistant producer at the east side institute i am here with a very special guest today today i'm here with a educator i'm here with an artist i'm here with an activist and i'm here with a actually a friend of mine uh by the name of spirit child spirit child what's going on chilling man everything is good how are you how are you Everything is all right, man. We're moving forward in a increasingly challenging world. <laughs> yep, every day, every day. Yes, yes, yes. How's everything on your end? How's everything been so far for you in the new year? Uh, everything has been good. It's been uh, it's been pretty fast, you know. Um, uh, fast pace uh, hit the ground running, you know. Uh, virtual streams, events, uh, planning, you know, trying to figure out what the rest of this year is going to look like. Already kind of got it mapped out. You know, um, we like to prefigure and just prepare. Um, so, uh, yeah, lots of music. Lots, lots of my children are keeping me busy. <laughs> you know, like it's just a beautiful time in these existing challenging times where we try to find a beauty in it. So every day above ground is a good day is what revolutionaries say. All right. All right. All right. Sounds great. Um, tell us a little bit about Urban Art Beat, um, uh, uh, organization in which you founded. Tell us a little bit about Urban Art Beat and what it does and, and how you came to, to, you know, create it. Yeah, so um, Urban Art Beat, um, thanks for the question. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's been a heart, you know. Um, uh, Urban Art Beat was founded by my partner, Rosa Bettina. Um, she was working in the Bronx and the schools uh, probably about, almost 15 years ago, and um, she noticed as a teacher, there wasn't a lot of programs to reach out to the young people in the schools to keep their interest. And um, this is before, like, there was a lot of organizations popping up with, you know, hip-hop kind of style formations. And she was trying to find a way to keep their enthusiasm and entertain. So she basically just brought her friends into a classroom um, she was teaching English um, at the time. She's an English teacher. And um, she would just like read hip hop lyrics, have people come, recite rhymes, write rhymes. Mm. Um, she started a whole little after school program. And then from there, it got bigger, more people got involved, and it became an actual organization. Um, and when I met her, I joined forces with her to make it a bit more um, politically relevant. Um, dealing with uh, social contact or, or, or the, the illnesses of society and things that we're suffering from within our communities, um, especially from the Bronx, Brooklyn, New York City, um, to worldwide. But um, yeah, I was doing a lot of uh, organizing and working in art-based organizations. So I had experience with that with Artstar and we kind of merged our worlds together, um, literally, physically, and figuratively, and all the way we got married and we had children and all that other stuff. But um, our first child was like our, our collaboration of working with the youth and teaching hip hop pedagogy. And, and um, among other venues, Urban Art Week works with incarcerated youth. Uh, what is that work like and how do you, how does it impact the youth that, that um, you're working with? Yeah, um, so uh, yeah, uh, part of that political process when I came on board, um, I've been working in juvenile detention facilities for about 20 years now. When I met Rosa, it was about, you know, 15 or so years or or 10 years or something like that. Um, And I was like, you know, it's cool that you're doing these after school programs and community centers. There was like connections with the door, um, which is a program um, downtown working with uh, low income, at risk youth, quote unquote, or homeless youth. Um, they were doing arts programming. And I said, you know, it'd be really great if we can actually go into prison and use your your structure, your method in the prison system. It's going to look different, but, you know, she was willing to take that risk. We trained artists on how to be 
um, uh, working in prison. What is the prison industrial complex? Why we have prisons so they can have an understanding when they go into mentor with the youth, not just kind of savior complex of thinking they're going to go there and help the young people, but actually work and learn from the young people. And it looks the same as when we work with any after school program. You know, we uh, we were surprisingly privileged enough to bring in um, state of the art equipment. You know, we got um, some keyboards in there, native instruments, reason, logic, um, the things that high tech producers used in the industry, Pro Tools. And our young people were able to create their own content, produce their own content, record themselves. Um, they even did little um, interviews with uh, tape recorders, mm. you know, um, those who weren't uh, too privy or too prone to uh, or prolific in writing rhymes. But 90 percent of them were like natural born lyricists. Uh, they knew how to freestyle. They knew how to write rhymes. They knew the structure in their bodies. Like they can feel the beat. They can feel what 16 bars or the measures are. And all we did was just craft and gave names to it, you know, and said, oh, this is music theory. Um, this is a 4-4 count. This is a 6-4 count. Um, but they already knew. They felt it in their blood. Um, so all we did was really record them. We couldn't really use the material on the outside because unfortunately, if people don't know, working in the Department of Corrections, when you are um, in prison, your property no longer belongs to you, even your creative content. So the DOC had ownership over the content that they produced, and they would not allow anything coming from prison. So we couldn't release any of their material because it didn't belong to them, quote unquote, per se, um, which is something that people should really think about um, when, when, when you are in prison or incarcerated, how much your rights are taken away. It's not just that you are there to be what society proclaims to be rehabilitated. Um, they actually take away a lot of your rights, your inalienable human rights um, to basic things and creativity. I think we can all gather around and say, if you create something, it should be yours. Um, so we, you know, we, we respected the DOC and what we still were able to give the young people their own content so they can have it. So we made CDs. Um, at the time, we were able to give them CDs until they banned that because they said it was deemed as um, uh, hazard items because uh, the jewel cases they could, you know, use as, oh. as weapons, et cetera. So the, all the outlandish things that you can think of, you know, things they started barring things as we were more successful in the prisons, even headphones. We were limited in bringing headphones in because they claimed that they can be used as something to um, to uh, do harm upon themselves, to inflict harm upon themselves with the headphones or other people. Um, so slowly, after our program became more and more successful, we had more more, um, more restrictions. You know, we even brought people from Germany, uh, from Belgium, from the Netherlands uh, over into prison with permission of the DOC. And then they started realizing, wait, you're bringing all these international people. Um, they're coming into Rikers. I don't know what they're saying about what we're doing here because we know the conditions in Rikers are just inhumane. Yeah. Um, so they were really concerned. So they started limiting our programming and access and then to a point where we couldn't even bring equipment anymore. We only could bring pen, paper, and even the pens, we would bring like golf pencils. Uh, they couldn't be really pens. They had to be pencils with no eraser tops. And like, it was just a whole bunch of things. But, you know, um, we were uh, successful until this current pandemic, you know, hit. Um, we were still going in there frequently, but we do this program internationally. So we go into prisons um, out in Belgium and, and Berlin as well. Excellent. Excellent work. Um, man, that, that sounds like, um, I could imagine like that, The that's like a world into itself when you go behind those bars, when you go behind those gates, when you go behind that wall. Mm -hmm. um, so for you to bring creation in there and, and give them an outlet um, is beautiful. It's play. It allows them to, to you know, use their imagination and get out of there. Yeah. And one other thing I, I, I failed to mention and was really important coming from them themselves. Every time after every session, we would do like a little survey or check-in, reflection circle, and they always give respect to what we're doing but a few young people would really really um and it never failed they will always say when we were there for the 90 minutes 75 minutes sometimes it was a pain to get inside there would be so many restrictions there'd be the lockdowns we have to turn around after spending two hours to travel 
They tell us we have to go because it's an incident on the island, so we couldn't get in. Whatever um, hurdle we had to cross, no matter how much time we spent with the young people, they will always say, when we were working together, I did not feel like I was in prison. And that just kept us going every day. You know, we would do programming like three times a day on the island. It got to a point where we sometimes would like four times a week on the island um, uh, with several facilities. We worked in like four different facilities, you know, and all the youth would just say, when I'm working on my music, I didn't, I don't hear the gates, you know, and you can hear it in the recording, these slamming bars closing, you know, um, the CO screaming, even some of the COs, correction officers, they were helping us out. They would see how much the young people love the program. They would wake them up so that they wouldn't miss our program. Uh. And it was a strange relationship because as a revolutionary, um, you know, seeing how the cops and how they brutalize and how they attack our people all the time. And sometimes, um, you know, there's no justice in that. And we're still seeing that today. It was hard to swallow the fact that we had some people on our side who were wearing uniforms who actually cared about these young people. And we looked and, and you know, the people who are COs, uh, they look like us, you know, and they and they actually had this um, this brotherly or uncle, you know, or old grandfather kind of love, tough love a lot of times, but you can feel it that they were really concerned about these young people getting some kind of education, some kind of artistic outlet. And they would sometimes even sing with the young people. You know, um, they would be like, I could sing too. And you see them making fun and jokes and they would freestyle and battle each other. Um, so whatever your perception was on the outside, the dynamic of good and evil or good and bad and, you know, all cops or whatever, whatever you had growing up, um, that kind of shifted a little bit on the inside because there was such a reliance upon these COs that we were watching this dynamic and we were shocked. So our politic also changed a little bit working on the inside um, and how to utilize allies and find allies in places that we probably would never think of. You know? It's an interesting uh, paradox right there. <laughs> yeah. <man>. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, your educational work at Urban Art Beat um, is called a Critical Revolutionary Hip Hop Pedagogy. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? And how <laughs> is that different to a traditional pedagogy? Yeah, oh, I love that. Thanks for that. Um, we're, we're actually um, in the process. We've been doing it for a few years because it's so it's such a mouthful that we've been we've been working on a book and um, to illustrate how to outline it. And the basic thing that I can say is um, it's a maroon pedagogy and maroons were um, people who were enslaved or never enslaved who practiced resistance, right? Um, so we think of hip hop, we think of a cultural resistance. So it's critical in the sense that it thinks about the current times, um, whether it be police brutality, the prison industrial complex, environmental injustice, um, homelessness, whatever, the young people want to talk about domestic violence, um, LGBTQIA+. We bring all of these issues on the table. That's the critical part. Um, you know, um, the revolutionary part, you know, clearly is being active and engaging, not just talking about these things theoretically, but practicing and trying to transform yourself. How do you respect other women? You know, how do you um, respect the COs? that are there, even though you have this anxiety and feeling and, and history and genetic um, uh, DNA trauma of people with uniforms, <laughs> you know, um, how to navigate that, but how to politically educate yourself as well, as well. And we have a theory of these three A's that we practice of, of, of having awareness uh, first and then having the articulation of that awareness and then having action based off that. So those three A's kind of support this pedagogy and hip hop, because that's the most relevant um, vehicle that we have found that resonates worldwide with our young people. Um, there's not a place that I've been to that said they never heard of hip hop. Um, there have been people who said, no, I listen to reggaeton. I'd rather, I rather that music. Um, however, people still respect that hip hop is a force and it's still like the most viable and um, outselling genre. Um, and so we try to practice what that means as a culture. What is hip hop, hip hop to the roots of it, not just as a style or genre of music. Yeah. And pedagogy, the way we break pedagogy down 
is really like the um the the um the etymology of it the 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 way the Greeks used to like to to take a child or to lead a child from one place to another that is the definition of pedagogy right so um we don't think of it as a top down doctrine we actually uh commune and educate in a circle and and try to listen to the young people and see what they want to do so it's very student centered it's very much around um you know uh their design um uh, we don't censor their material it, sometimes it's really uncomfortable but we listen to their inherent politic whatever they're coming in with whatever they're feeling and we then wrap around our revolution our critical our critique our assessments around that and we ask them questions and then we ask them to facilitate so this process is not just a process of teaching or education is a process of growing and developing young leaders um and also assessing why we're having such a challenge to develop and grow young leaders and having them see that and take ownership in that and transforming their own lives you know so um that to me is a difference between regular hip hop pedagogy and what we're doing we're intentional on having people be young revolutionaries we don't force them to be revolutionaries but we do uh pour a little bit where we say look at society you know why do you want to write about having cars and a yacht and why do you want to rap about um uh, uh jealousy and envy and snakes and like why do you feel this way and why why are your communities looking the way they're looking and you know I'm um, giving them the history of the Bronx and how the Bronx was burning and that's where hip hop came from and you're using this tool but what what power does this tool have and how much ownership do you have of it and is art dictating your life or are you dictating the art and all these particular philosophical questions we ask in a manner that they can understand and they can repeat back usually through song or their artistic um engagement you know whatever their their preferences if we put um the hip hop pedagogy is the way of the future <laughs> it is but it's, it's the way, way it's the it's the most relatable thing you know even with talking to my partner who's a teacher right now um she uses that in the classroom you know um she's playing i don't like it so much but i respect it hamilton you know okay. um so she plays clips of that to teach them you know the history you know and and to make it relevant and lively and then she'll bring um clips from little baby talking about police brutality the bigger picture you know she'll bring um clips from Kanye whatever whatever is relevant rhapsody you know like she'll bring um you know you know female woman MCs to talk about the plight and struggle of of being a woman in our society you know um how how patriarchal it is um she brings those perspectives in a language that they can understand is different you know um it, it is the way because um the old way of teaching our young people is is not working it has never worked um we we learned uh, through our process that that is a factory model education the system that we have education was only designed for the privileged people it was designed for the the royalty you know you were only royalty to to, to receive education and then they started this whole concept to 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 kind of like well this is what we what we do our history right they start this whole concept to say well the people will rebel if we don't give them education so then they started this factory model education where they put everybody in schools they're overcrowded overpopulated um so you have like 30 people in a classroom and one teacher you can't there's no mentorship there's no individual connection um they're sitting in roles they're they're not questioning what they're learning they mm-hmm. can't they have to eat that design mm-hmm. um you know my child today um walking to school he reminded me and said hey dada um i'm just going to let you know cuz last year we had this conversation and may or may not be relevant to the people listening but it's an interesting story coming from him he was doing remote learning they had him pledge allegiance to the flag and we had a conversation about what it means to pledge allegiance to the flag um we also had a conversation um about uh when he uh, one of his teachers said oh you know about martin luther king this was last year and people you know are free and he said well i don't think everyone's free 
we still have political prisoners. The teacher said, no, 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 people are free now. <laughs> so he didn't understand what she was talking about because he sees his mother and father fighting in the streets for revolution and for freedom and for civil rights and human rights. So he's like, wait, I'm confused. So I had to break it down to him today. I said, thank you for telling me. I will explain to your teacher that there is a contradiction that we live in. My son chooses not to participate in pledging allegiance to the flag because that is a political statement that is being forced upon him in the school system. So our school system is very closely tied to our government. Our government is not connected or tied to our liberation. Now, depending on who you are listening, you may agree or not agree. And if you look and see around what's happening to particular societies and communities in the world, you see that there's a disparity. You can't argue that. You'll see that certain people are dying. You can't argue that. You'll see that certain people fill up the prison systems when we go throughout the world. No matter where we are, even in Belgium, the prisons do not look white. They're not filled with white people, even though the people or the majority of those people who inhabit that country would be white. And that's a conversation to have. I'm not saying anything other than those particular facts. So when my child is told to pledge allegiance and alliance to a flag, to the United States of America, in which um, has been oppressing and continues to oppress or not acknowledge the rights of our people, um, it's a conversation for us to have. And a six-year-old having that conversation with a teacher should show you something, there's something inherently wrong if my child is saying something that you don't know or acknowledge, at least acknowledge that as a possible truth, mm -hmm. as a possible truth. It may not be true to everybody, but for him in his small world, he sees that as true, that we're not free. So what does that mean pedagogically and how do you foster an understanding or a conversation about that? So I'll just leave it there. <laughs> That, that's going to be a very interesting uh, parent-teacher conference right there. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, we're going to cut for a short commercial break, and um, we'll be right back after these commercial break. Hi, I'm Melissa Meyer, Associate Director of the Eastside Institute. Welcome to All Power to the Developing. I hope you're enjoying today's conversation. In each episode, we introduce you to some amazing performance activists, play revolutionaries, and developmentalists from around the world who talk to us about their creative grassroots efforts to build a better world. If you like what you hear, please follow and share the series. You can find us on Amazon, Spotify, and Podbean. We'd love to hear your comments and ideas. Like everything at the Institute, the growth of all power to the developing depends upon the people who create it and benefit from it. We hope you're one of them. Thanks for your support. And now back to our conversation. This is Des, and I'm back here with our guest, Spirit Child. Um, Spirit, you've been quoted as saying, community spaces where children are given the tools to change the society in which they live. Could you share a little bit about that and what that means and what is your vision for education and what education you feel should be? You, you yeah, um, thanks. Yeah, um, the, uh, you know, um, when we think of, pedagogy or relevant education, education, um, we feel doesn't have to be, it could be more imaginary. It doesn't have to be this uh, blanket that we put and we force people to learn something. If, if, um, if something is not socially, politically, literally relevant to a community, then maybe we should figure out what is relevant for that community. Um, uh, we study a lot from Paolo Fieri, um, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, who also um, inspired Augusto Boal, um, Theater of the Oppressed. And Augusto Boal um, would work with quote-unquote peasant farmers to teach them literacy through situational theater. He would teach them through art, 
how to um, how to be literate, you know, um, and 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 the tools that were given were tools on farming, right? Like those would be the situational theater to learn lessons of life. Um, it wasn't something uh, that was necessarily irrelevant. They have to be engaged in that process, especially if someone is already um, not only um, illiterate in the way that we see you know, um, a person because they can't read to the level that we expect them to read or no mathematics or whatever. Um, it's beyond that. It's, it's, it's like, how do you connect with that education? You know, um, if a child is leaving school because of their economic disposition, then maybe it could be a possibility for an opening to teach greater uh, ability to achieve economic advancement, how to obtain, maintain, or sustain your life. Um, Maslow speaks of this pyramid, right, of self-actualization. If you do not have the basic needs met, that's your first level, there is no way you're going to self-actualize. There's no way you're going to be creative or be in a space where you can think of other things but survival. And many of the people that we are speaking of who are quote unquote illiterate or don't have proper education are living in conditions that are not conducive for a humane or rightful space in our society. Um, housing, heating. I mean, we just had an incident um, that we're seeing in Tremont in the Bronx where, you know, space heaters were used because the landlords uh, were not properly heating the buildings. So people had to find other ways. And then children are dying. Eight children died, you know, um, and, and this is this is a reality. And, and, and this is 2022. Right. Um, and this is something that even since the Brown versus Board of Education, 1954, since that we have seen. There's been more disparity in our schools just because there is equal quote-unquote rights doesn't mean their practice in various districts. What's actually happening is before 1954, you at least had Black um, institutions that were respected and that were actually taking care of their younger people. Those institutions, we still have a few, but they dissolved since. And then you have more of this, oh, let's all come together. We're all coming together, but we're, 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 um, we're forced with this zoning districts, right? So where I grew up in the Bronx, we had less resources because we were living in one of the poorest districts in the United States of America for education. We didn't have the proper books or tools to use in our schools to um, advance educationally. Whereas other people who lived in more privileged communities were able to have their little computers and laptops and you know, um, uh, clean, nice new books and relevant to up-to-date books, you know, um, these are the, 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 the disparities that we're speaking of. And in, in addition to the fact that we're not addressing the basic needs of our society, the government isn't doing it. Um, the Black Panthers would do a program where they would feed the young people because the young people were being malnourished because the school system wasn't providing proper food in the schools. So they took it upon themselves to wake up at five o'clock in the morning cook food for young people in the community, feed them, and, 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 and also tell them about their history and self-determination, and they were called terrorists. And, and the state attacked them. And guess what happened? 20 years later, the state adopted this practice of evil terroristic socialism, which is what they were practicing, of trying to find a way for everybody to have a meal. They started doing free breakfast in the schools. The same thing that the Panthers were deemed um, and, and, and criminalized for in protecting their communities, the government tried to step in and provide. Now, we know the nutrition in the school system is not good, um, which also um, uh, fosters bad education, ADHD, um, uh, hyperactivity. Uh, uh, um, we see all this psychological um, lack of development happening because of the nutrition or lack thereof in our school system. So when we talk about the tools, we're talking about holistically, right? 
Um, even uh, sometimes we speak of libations. We talk about our ancestry and, and, and doing kind of a spiritual uh, gathering when we do our workshops, honor or call out the names of those people that are no longer living. This is a traditional ritual that we, as people of African diasporic descent, have. It's not a religious thing. It's something that connects us to our ancestors to show us even indigenous cultures everywhere here on this land, the Nape people, anywhere you call it, they've always acknowledged their ancestors. Why do we need to acknowledge the flag and not our ancestors? We should be opening up our conversation in the morning with saying, thank you, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, Fannie Lou Hamer, anybody that's relevant to our societies, Taino, Arawak, um, uh, um, Lenape, uh, whatever traditional uh, indigenous peoples that you come from, Mayan, Aztec, any of our people and say, what is relevant to you? How do you empower yourself? That is self-determination. That is education. One should not force a God, a politic, a government on a people, especially if it's not relevant to them, for them to feel that they're getting education. That is misinformation and miseducation. That is not education. That's why a lot of our kids are dropping out because they don't feel that these school systems are relevant to their existence. They don't feel that the school systems are giving them the proper tools, sustainability. We speak about that um, uh, entrepreneurship, which is a really strong part of hip hop, how to sell your material, how to be um, creatively invested and to reap the benefits from that investment, how to protect your rights as an artist. These things we try to teach in our, um, we don't teach capitalism, but we teach a, a holistic, sustainable way of how to be and how to protect yourself and how to grow. So our young people have a tool, right? I need a book bag. I need books. I need pens. How am I going to get that? Let's give you some tools so you can receive that. Let's give you some tools if your sneakers are like busted and you need to like feel confident to go to school Let's figure a way for you to have that. So these are the relevant tools that we speak of um, that we try to address um, with our young people to at least consider and think about and then strive to help them and guide them on how to obtain those things. Spirit, you're, you're, a, you're a hip hop extraordinaire. You're an educator. And clearly you're an activist. How did you get involved with activism in the first place? How, how, what, what took you into this direction? <laughs> Ironically enough, it was a teacher, <laughs> it was a, a school teacher. Um, but I was blessed, you know. I, I went to Dewitt Clinton High School in the Bronx, and um, uh, a lot of people don't know this, um, and and I think it's relevant for people here to know. Um, my mother and my father. Uh, my mother was a, a, a New York City police officer, right? My father was an Atlanta, Georgia police officer. Prior to that, he served in Vietnam. He was in the military. So I wasn't born a revolutionary, right? And I think that's really important for people to understand because people have this kind of dichotomy or this perception of all oh, these radical uh, conspiracy theorists, people, whatever. I didn't grow up like that, right? My mother went to maybe a few protests that she told me later and I didn't even know about she was like, yeah, I used to be a part of that Black Power movement. I was like, oh, I didn't know you was down with that. Um, but she never really shared that with me. I didn't learn that from her. I learned to be a revolutionary by the social conditions that I was living in. I learned through mentors who introduced me to Malcolm X, right? They showed me the book, the autobiography of Malcolm X. I read that and I was never the same. I recommend Black, White, Asian, um, Indigenous, Whoever you are, um, if you want to have an understanding of Black resistance or Black people in this state or any state of the world, read Malcolm X, the autobiography of Malcolm X. Um, that changed my life. You know, from then on, I was never the same. I used to write about, um, <laughs> I used to write gangster hip hop, you know, like I wasn't always a conscious quote unquote MC. I wasn't always woke. I used to write about the most outlandish things. If I would recite some of those rhymes, I would be like embarrassed, you know? <laughs> um, 
And I learned to embrace that too, because I don't shame any of the young people who come in. That's why we're able to work with people, because Malcolm also didn't start like Marcus Garvey. Mm. Malcolm is what we consider somebody who was a prisoner of consciousness. He was in prison, and then he gained his consciousness through his imprisonment. So that's why we work so much in the prisons, because we find that there are gems in prison. There are people there who have sometimes nothing to lose and everything to gain, especially education. And Malcolm transformed himself in prison. He became anew in prison. And look at the contributions he did. Look at what he's done for our people and our societies throughout the world. He is an emblem, a symbol of resistance, um, integrity, principle, wisdom. Um, you can't, you can't out-debate Malcolm. I mean, he, they, people have tried. <laughs> you know, you can see these speeches. He will destroy anybody on any platform. Yale, he went to Yale and had debates on, on, on civil rights. He would talk to news people, interview people. They would just destroy all of them. So this is somebody who um, was Detroit Red. You know, Detroit Red, a hustler in the streets. And when we turn our back on society, we're turning our back on the future. You know, we're turning our backs on the possibility of another world. And when I when I read the autobiography of Malcolm X, I was like, I I don't know. I think in my bones, I don't think I said it out loud, but I feel like in my bones, I was like, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Like, I want to transform. I want to always grow. And when I got to know more about Malcolm, um, not the uh, the Malcolm that people have portrayed him to be, I also got more politically educated. And I learned that, you know, he transformed also hate into love. He transformed um, uh, Black nationalism into this kind of universal acceptance of humanity. And he even um, said at one point, you know, I made a mistake in my life there was a white woman who came up to me and said, what can I do for the black struggle? And he looked at her and said, absolutely nothing. And when he came back from Mecca and when he had his spiritual transformation, he said, what I should have told her was that you can do a lot for our communities, especially organizing in your community to get people to see who we are as a people. And I don't think there's any greater gift of political education than learning that. You learn spiritualism, you learn liberation, revolution, resistance. He embodied so many things. Um, so uh, for me, that was that was my entry point. And um, I wasn't a part of any organization um, necessarily. In, in high school, we were a part of Shades, which was a Black organization, which was more for self-determination. I forget exactly what the acronym was, but it was an acronym, Shades. And um, my teacher was uh, um, was West Indian, and I really identified with him. You know, being black, uh, Puerto Rican, and Jamaican, um, somebody who spoke my language, who who understood, who didn't, uh, you know, shame me for wearing my pants low or, or 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 rocking a hat or like you know whatever. He did not. His his first political act in our classroom was if anybody used the N word. They had to give a dollar and put a dollar in his jar. I soon later found out that that was something that many people did. I don't know where they got it from, but they did that as far as like really getting people to be conscious and aware of the words and the power that they had and how they were perpetuating the stigma of our people. Um, but that was the first political act he had his classrooms do. I learned Black history. I learned Nile Valley civilization, Egypt. I took um, courses. I went to Egypt. Um, uh, I was inspired by this educator. Had I not had him as a teacher, I don't know where I would be today. Um, I just took the the fundament of just that year being with him, and I, it just spread out through my life. I just strengthened it, you know. Um, and I hope that that's what we do. And and I I, I used to strive to be a teacher. Um, I realized it was a lot of education, and I kind of dropped out. I, I dropped out of um, college at one point, but then I went back. I took psychology. Um, I worked with um, uh, people who were um, triply diagnosed. Uh, um, <clears throat> they were uh, developmentally challenged um, uh, along with some kind of functioning disability. Um, they were differently abled and they also had a um, uh, psychological diagnosis. So we would actually administer medication. 
um, to, to particular people. So I was like working in their homes and uh, I went back to school to strengthen that. So um, one thing that I've been putting into practice is this kind of holistic way of like hip hop, psychology, spirituality, um, sexuality. Um, I've been learning and I take from a lot of different places. So it's not just the rah, rah, rah protest, but it's actually how do we transform? You know, how do we learn to love appropriately and properly? You know, that doesn't harm other people. How do we sustain that love? Um, so yeah, I'm still I'm still learning. I'm always in school. Definitely. <laughs> it's a lifelong learning process. Yep, yep. Um throughout you're an educator, you're an activist, but you're also a hip hop artist. So how does how does you, you're going into the, the schools, you're going into the prisons, um, you're doing all this work. I'm sure a lot of a lot of things are impacting you also. Um how is this paralleling to you being a hip hop artist and how does it, how does it involve uh, you being a hip hop artist and how does it impact your hip hop artistry? Mm, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I sometimes wonder if um, I kind of um, put a, a hold on myself. You know, um, the last album I did, um, I just released it uh, in December. 2021. It was uh, entitled Maroon Militant Matriarch in parentheses Man's Mirror. And man I spell with for M-X-N. Um, and that is a <laughs> that is what I would call and somebody wrote a review and I, I really appreciate it. I was like, wow, you know, it's like a hip-hop dissertation to maroonage and black resistance. Um, if you had asked me when I first started rapping, <laughs> when I was in like the third grade, that I would make an exclusively political album about the history of our people along with direct action and relevant content on police brutality, the prison industrial complex, et cetera, et cetera, being a revolutionary matriarch, I would have looked at you and said, what are you talking about? <laughs> because that was not my entry to hip hop. You know, my entry to hip hop was like just fun. You know, Rakim and LL, Rock the Bells. And uh, there wasn't, I mean, Public Enemy was a part of it, but that was just a small part of it. That yeah. wasn't the whole part of my hip hop existence. Red Man, I had you know, Slick Rick, mm -hmm. clown rappers. I got, you know, boasting rappers. Yeah, yeah Bismarcky. Yeah. Biz oh you, you, you loved them all. You, just, you, didn't, all focus, you didn't focus on, on who was just giving you a particular message. You, you wanted to hear what everyone had to say. Everybody. Um, and, 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 and part of me being so in love with hip hop, um, that's why I go back to sing of like, I don't, you know, I, I also venture out and I do, I do have records that are like exclusively about love and relationships. Um, but I tend to always fall back to what I know or what I want to grow in, which is revolution. Um, and I, I utilize hip hop has been a blessing because hip hop is what got me in prison. If I went to prison talking about I'm going to talk about revolution, I wouldn't be in prison. They wouldn't let me in prison. I work at Sing Sing with the adults. They would not let me going in there talking about Malcolm X, Marcus Garvey, Black August, um, uh, Black Panthers, the Young Lords. They would not let me do that. Um, I am able and blessed to do that because I'm a performer. I'm a cultural worker. Um, so for all you educators and people out there, uh, I've been, I, the ones who helped me grow were the teachers, uh, the professors, the um, students, college students. They brought me in where they felt they would get in trouble by their institution. So they brought me in as a subliminal weapon. They say, go talk to the people. And I'd be like, fight the power, you know? Like, so, you know but, but I would just, it'd be a song, it'd be a hip hop beat. And the administration wouldn't really think anything of it because, and then we have a conversation about those songs, you know? Um, so my revolution and liberation is so immersed and tied in with um, each other that it's sometimes hard to separate, you know, it's, it's just my being, but then I'm like, 
there's that other part of me, you know, that eight year old, you know, that's in my belly and gut being like, I just want to be like hip hop. Hooray. Ho, hey, you know, I just want to just have fun. And and I say a hold because um, this is what the struggle for liberation does to us sometimes. Um, we're beholden. We are so accountable that um, it's we have to figure out how to resist the urge of being in a box, right? Like, I don't want to be writing songs about um, revolution and liberation all the time, but I have to because we're not free, right? I want us to be free so I can spend more of my time enjoying freedom. Um, and some people ask me like, why do you keep rapping about this stuff? I'm like, because it hasn't changed, <laughs> you know? Like it's still relevant, it hasn't changed. I wanna, trust you me, I don't wanna write another song about a young person getting shot and assassinated by police officers. I don't wanna do that. I don't, I don't find joy in that, but I can't see myself doing anything else because I wouldn't feel, um, I wouldn't feel relevant and accountable to my communities. And I feel like it's important to be consistent and persistent um, and, and, and still have a good time. You know, I'm not going to say like, you know, I, I could still talk about this murky feeling and you would leave with a smile on your face. I'm not doing shows where people leaving depressed, you know, like my shows are pretty lively. Um, and still there's that angst, that anxiety, that energy that's like, I got to do something. I hope that's what people feel. Um, so that's how, I, I mean, that's how I use uh, uh, hip hop. Hip hop has been a tool for me. And when we work with our young people, we, we try to explain it. It can be a tool for you to share whatever you want to change in this world. And there's so many things to change. Um, and you can use that for that as well. Definitely. Um, no, you, well, you just said, um, um, you know, like, um, Hip hop to me is so interesting, and I would like to ask you this question, kind of based off what you said. As a practitioner of hip hop, and you, you um, experiencing it has it was being developed, to elements coming in and particular things coming in. You're seeing it being developed, but then as it got commodified, now they're giving us a particular image of what it is. Is that frustrating for you as a person within hip-hop to know what this culture is truly about, to know what the elements are truly about, yet to have outsiders dictate to you what <laughs> the culture is about? Mm -hmm. Yes, and that's, that's, that's the hold again. Like That's why I feel so strong, um, and I don't want to be so, so adamant about doing this because I feel like it's so off-scaled and imbalanced that... And it shouldn't be any one particular person's responsibility, but I feel inherently it's my responsibility to balance that uh, stereotype or stigma and break that image that the industry wants us and wants to perpetuate to people on the outside. Ah, oh, yeah, these guys are just talking about, you know, killing each other. We're just talking about getting drinks and getting high on the block or whatever. And I, I know we're not just talking about that. You know, I know that there are so many artists that I love, you know, Phase One, Hassan Salam, Rebel Diaz, Immortal Technique. I can name a whole bunch of artists that don't fall into that category, but many people don't know that in the mainstream. Um, and, um, you know, Chuck D um, put it one time, he put it real plainly. He was like, you know, um, you know, he, he was considering himself uh, and, and what they were doing, like the black CNN, you know what I'm saying? Like they were giving news reports on what's going on because people did not know what was really happening in a particular community. So they were being relevant and educating outside people and even people on the inside and saying, look, this is what we can do. We can shut this Nike sweatshop down because it's not, um, it's exploiting people throughout the world. You know, it, it's benefiting from people's suffering. Shut it down. You know, um, and bringing this kind of information where people didn't really know. Um, I think the, the the industry is the industry. You know, it's designed uh, again, just like education. It's 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 not controlled by the government, but it works in alignment with the government. Um, it's 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 another tool. Media. Um, when I talked about CNN, Fox News, all these things. These are apparatuses of 
a particular governmental legacy of oppression. So it's not going to be to our benefit. Anything coming from there, I always question. Anything that's getting praised from industries, I question. And once in a while, like Denzel, you'll see a Grammy nominated, right? Award given. But Denzel got his award for being a gangster in training day. You know how many movies he did prior to that? You know, we, we know, you know, he's like a Sidney Portier. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Like he, Harry Belafonte, these people, you know, Paul Robeson, they weren't glorified for their contribution in black society or humanity. It was their character at one point or another that they played or portrayed, right? Um, and I and I love that um, the tide shifted a bit with Kendrick Lamar, where he became like a poet laureate or something, and he got an award. And like that's great because he's an he's an amazing example. But how many Kendrick Lamars are there? I mean, you know, he's pretty unique. But how many people who strive in that particular category of like being socially conscious, relevant, um, speaking of self determination, but also being creative? There's a lot of people like that that don't get any kind of light or burn, but the industry gives one or two um, accolades and they do that. Just like um, if you think of our system of, of capitalism so that people don't rebel, they give you a little bit of socialism. You know, they give, they, 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 they you know, they, they hook you up with the governmental programs and the things and say, no, no, we're taking care of our people. You know, you have welfare. You know, we, we, we have, um, we have Medicaid. You know, um, we, we have uh, grocery stores that have uh, genetically modified food. You know, like, you know, we have these, we have available produce for you. And they give you this illusion that they're looking out for you or considering you or that they, 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 they honor what your contribution is or who you are. But really, it's, it's, it's an illusion. You know, um, there's nothing there that's healthy. Like the hip hop, it's, it's like genetically modified, right? It's not food to give you substance, sustenance to sustain yourself or your children and your consciousness to grow and develop and break the shackles that we've been living in. That's not what hip hop is feeding you. So I do have a problem with it, but I understand it. I used to be so angry at it, um, but then I've accepted it. And I just work with young people to say, you can tour, you can be a successful hip hop artist without signing over to a, a contract, you know, um, you can do this because I've done it. And I know a lot of friends of mine that have done it who've been successful toward the world. And we have no budget, no record deal, no fame, but we're able to do what we love and love what we're doing. You know, so there's ways. And I think young people just need to see those alternatives and and, uh, and weigh their options. If they want to sign, go ahead, sign. But if you want to still do hip hop as a passion, you can do that without any sponsorship. You know, um, so we Definitely. promote that. Definitely. Lastly, uh, lastly, Spirit Child, thank you so much for your time today. Being it, uh, doing what you're doing as an educator, as an activist, and I'm sure even too as a hip hop artist, could be very rough emotionally, emotionally draining, physically draining. How do you build up? How did you build up resiliency? And 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 what is your message? How can you build up resiliency? Because it's one thing I've seen of you uh, throughout the years of me knowing you is like you keep going keep going keep going you're doing something if it's not out in the streets you, there's music if it's not music it's artwork if it's not artwork it's a talk on the streets if it's not talking the streets it's the workshops you're doing in the schools if if it's not one thing it's the other and that is um it, that is amazing to see that resiliency and 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 despite what's going on also the pandemic has been very rough but you still have been very active how did you build up that resiliency? How do you build a resiliency? Oh uh, man, that's 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 dope. Thanks. And thanks for seeing it. I appreciate you, brother. I appreciate you being out there with us and um um you know, giving your talents as well, you know, cuz you've been around for years, you know, um coming through and 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 practicing and and doing your your b-boy skills, MCing, freestyling, giving your love to the community. So I could say the same question for you. You know, how do you stay relevant? And you're doing this amazing job right now with this podcast, and you you know how to you know you know how to shape shift and and do that. Um, and and I appreciate that. Um, the uh, w one thing that I I found that's really helpful is uh, community. You know, um, there's uh we we need community. You know, um, and anything that I build, um, I'm always trying to build with other people. 
I'm always trying to collaborate with other people so that when I feel um, depressed or when I feel down or when I feel like I can't take it, I can offload with those people and they can share and remind me like what you're saying right now, you know, remind us of the beauty of the struggle, of the work that we're doing, the accomplishments. Um, we just did a live stream yesterday, a virtual event for political prisoner Kamal Siddiqui, you know, so he can be free, a, a, a Black Panther, somebody who was serving food. He's a grandfather, you know, um, um, and we just freed a political prisoner, one of our elder mentors, uh, Russell Maroon Schultz, last year. And unfortunately, 52 years, uh, 52 days later, he transitioned with the ancestors. He died, but he got to live his free breath. And I do it because of that. I do it because he deserves freedom. He was in prison for 49 years. You know, um, it makes me sad to see that, you know, and, and it hurts. I cry a lot. Um, you know, I have to find outlets. My children give me energy. You know, I'm getting teary eyed right now. It's like, it's really hard, you know, but um, I find that when we have, um, good people around us, um, we can never lose. You know what I'm saying? We can never lose. We, 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 um, I look at my children, I tell you, you know, like today about that flag, I'm like, he's going to grow up. You know, he's black. My daughter, she's going to grow up. She's black. They're going to have children. It's going to be difficult for them. I want it to be easier. And um, if I stop doing what I'm doing now, it's not going to get easier because the powers that be are going to grow a conscious and say, oh, yeah, we're, we're done oppressing these people. Let's let's just throw in the towel and let them let them live. They're not going to let us live. They don't let us live in peace. We're not in peace. You know, um, and until we have that, then I could rest easy, but I can't rest. So um, it doesn't feel like work. It just feels like the life that, you know, um, you know, depending on your spiritual practice, you know, you chose to live in. You know, we choose our vessels, our parents. And somehow I chose my parents and and um and I'm here and and I have to live this life, you know. Um, but you know, we we grew um out of uh organizations and formations. We were scientific soul sessions at one point, was movement in motion at one point. Um, that dissolved, then it became a new black arts movement, and we wanted to be more relevant. So we started the Maroon Party for Liberation, and then the Maroon Party for Liberation started the Maroon Liberation School, especially during this time of the pandemic. For two years, we're at our season five right now where we have a school that's not just a school, you know, it's a, it's a support system, you know, it's it's therapy. You know, people come through and they talk about um, their connection or disconnection to society and they talk about how to heal that. But in freeing any political prisoner or, 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 or liberating anyone from any social ill, you're freeing yourself, you know, and I believe that. I believe that wholeheartedly. I believe that every time we do work, we're liberating ourselves, we're transforming ourselves. And that's what inspires me. I want to be better. I want to be a better human. You know, I can't sit around and not do these things because that doesn't make me a better human. To be a better human, you have to be active. You have to be engaged. You have to um, stay connected and connect with people and find humanity where humanity doesn't exist sometimes. You know, and, and that's 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 the most humane thing to do. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's not it's not easy. It's not, you know, resilience is not something that grows overnight. Um, but like any muscle or any tool or any practice or any talent, it gets sharper. You know, every time you hit the stage every time you write a rhyme every time you go to the studio every time you lift weights every time you run and jog you always go a little bit further you always do something that you didn't think you could do before but if you stop doing it you never know the possibility you know and i love to see the potential in me turn into kinetic energy and I love to shock myself. I love to challenge myself. I love to be better. Um, and uh, yeah, I find it in community um, that this school right now that we have, I really hold on to it. Um, people also say the same thing that they've said in prison. You know, they're like, yo, during this pandemic, if it wasn't for this school to show up every week to see these people, because some people aren't even going outside in some countries. They don't, they're not going outside. 
Yeah. So this is like the only social interaction they have. It's rough, rough. Spirit, thank you so much um, for your time today. Thank you for all your work that you're doing in the community. Um, you're such a source of inspiration for many and um, always appreciated. Um, we'd like to thank all, all the power to the developing audience for tuning in. Uh, please follow us on social media, on Facebook. There's the All Power to Developing like page. And there's also the Eastside Institute like page. Please give us a nice click on there and follow this. Uh, also, if you like what you're listening to, if you like us, please write to us at podcast at eastsideinstitute.org. Podcast at eastsideinstitute.org. And let us know how you're feeling these podcasts. We would love to share with our audience. Thank you so much, Spirit Child, for being here today with us. And uh, we hope to hear from you again. Thank you so much, brother. Always a pleasure. And all power to the developing people. All power to all people. Freedom. Definitely.